Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 32, which along with Psalm 143 are the psalms appointed for today, Ash Wednesday, March the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's We're going to use the daily lessons for this um, podcast today. Um, if, if I were pastoring a church, we would have a Ash Wednesday service, and we would read some different lessons. I'm going to refer to one of those lessons today. We'd be looking at Psalm 51, and then we would also be in the book of Joel, where uh, the Lord calls for a solemn fast that disaster might be averted for the people of Israel. So I'm going to refer to that during the first lesson, which is going to be from Jonah uh, 3, uh, beginning at the first verse and going all the way through the end of the book, which is chapter 4, verse 11. The gospel is from Luke 18, 9 to 14, and the epistle is the uh, letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, the first 14 verses of that chapter. So it, it, it'll take a minute to do these today because the, the Jonah story is a long reading. So anyway, be prepared. But I love the book of Jonah, so hopefully I can give you something worthwhile. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so the second time, (laughs) what happened the first time, right? Jonah turned and went the other way, and he got on a ship, and then... There was a problem at sea because it was a great storm because of Jonah. Ultimately, the sailors have to throw him overboard in order to get the sea to stop. And then the Lord appointed a fish, and that fish, then Jonah lived in the belly of that fish for three days. And it's frequently called a whale, but it's just, it's a fish. So we don't know what kind of fish or whatever, I have no earthly idea. But then after three days, Jonah gets a clue, prays to God, ends with salvation belongs to the Lord. The fish spits him up on dry land, and then we pick up the story. So Jonah arose this time, that was my parenthetic, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So he obeyed the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So it would take three days to walk all the way across the city of Nineveh. Um, That would be a big city in uh, those times. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he went about a third of the way into the city, and then he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we have no earthly idea whether he has said anything beyond that or not, or whether that was his entire message, because, well, you know, it's the letter of the law. God said, say this, so I said this. We don't have any earthly idea if there was more to Jonah's message or not. But what we do know is the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So so top to bottom, everybody there called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Now, people will ask, John, you can't possibly believe this is a real story, can you? Well, I can, actually, and I do. Um, I believe that this actually probably did happen, and there's two reasons for believing that. There's multiple reasons, but but 
if you know this, you know that there was a solar eclipse just before all this happened um, in Nineveh. And in ancient times, people were, were confused and afraid of those things. They saw a solar eclipse as, as an omen from God or gods, whichever one you, you would have worshipped. But at any rate, they, they would have been on alert. And so this odd prophet that comes from somewhere else telling them things are going to go badly— would would possibly have caused that reaction if you also know that just before this happened there had also been an earthquake and people attributed that to the work of the gods but before that even not in the very distant past Nineveh Babylon had lost a battle for the first time in a long time and had lost uh, territory at the same time and so they would have seen something going wrong and then they would have seen two signs in the heavens and the earth that would have indicated to them that possibly God was trying to speak to them or, or whatever God they believed in was trying to speak to them. And they would have had reason to have doubts about themselves for the first time in quite a while. So the word then, after the people declared a fast, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. So the king, too participated in this fast uh, and in this mourning. And again, I just gave you three reasons why I should believe that was possible. Uh, And so the king would have had a reason to respond as well. And he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So they're not even going to feed the animals Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that's in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may may not perish. So it's a strong proclamation from the king. Like I said, he's declaring a fast, not just for the people, but for the animals, the beasts as well. Um, why they would be involved, I have no earthly idea, but he, but he does. And, and we're going to see that again at the end of uh, the passage, too, this whole thing about the beasts. So if we had had a, uh, an Ash Wednesday service today, we would have probably read from Joel, and we would have read in Joel 2. And we would have read, at least part of that would have included this, Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And you're going to see that in uh, in the uh, in Jonah's response, and a lot of that, all of it, in fact, comes from God's self description in Exodus 34. And so Joel is calling the people to return to the Lord. He's calling for a fast, um, and is saying, "Return to the Lord." And and what he wants them to do is confess their sins. And he ends up with this, though. Listen to the king first. I'm going to repeat what he said. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he's seeing best case scenario is we won't die. He won't he won't overthrow us in that way. Joel ends this way. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So it's, it's certainly a blessing not to die. But Joel, who has a fuller understanding of God, sees him not just as that bad thing that didn't happen because we did this. No, he sees there may be a blessing that God gives us for repentance. And that's the difference between knowing God and hearing about God. Joel knows 
what kind of God he serves. He knows he serves a God who is a God of blessing, not just a God who is against punishment. There's a total, totally different idea at work there. <clears throat> so when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. It's the same thing he didn't do to the Israelites in the wilderness. He didn't destroy them. He didn't destroy them at the time um, of Nebuchadnezzar either. He let them go into exile, but he didn't destroy them. So that's the important thing. The disaster that he was going to do here against the Ninevites was Nineveh was going to be overthrown, and the people were going to die. He had shown the same exact mercy to his own people time and time again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Exceedingly is another word that shows up a lot here. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And, and that, again, it's a quote directly from Exodus 34 and relenting from disaster. What he doesn't get into is truth is important here. And, and Jonah is the son of Amittai, and Amittai means truth. So Jonah himself um, leaves out truth in this because there is truth in here. They repented in truth. Now, it wouldn't be permanent, and they didn't turn necessarily to Jonah's God, but they did repent. They acknowledged their own sinfulness. So what's Jonah propose, right? I mean, therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Why is that? What is it that Jonah's so upset about that he would rather die than live? Well, it's because he did not want God to forgive those people who had been so cruel to Jonah's people, God's people. He wanted to see justice executed there. He wanted justice for them and mercy for himself. In fact, he depends on mercy of God the whole book because he just acts a right jerk. And I'll say this, and I've said it before, I believe that Jonah is the only person who could have written Jonah's book, and I believe he did it in retrospect to show that he wasn't a hero at all. The reason that I believe all that is because Jonah's tomb is actually, it was in Mosul. So it was in Iraq. It was in Babylon. It was where Jonah's tomb was, and it was a shrine to the people there. They, the, the iconoclast destroyed it at the time of the Civil War in Iraq. But before that, ISIS, you know, thought thought that it was a problem to have those shrines like that, and so they tore it up. But Jonah was buried there. And so I believe that Jonah did see the error of his own ways. <clears throat> so God asked him after that, do you do well to be angry? And this time Jonah doesn't give an answer. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. The booth's similar to what the Israelites used in the wilderness. So he's he's just put together kind of a lean-to because of the heat. He sat under it in the shade, under the booth in the shade, till he should see what should become of the city. He fully expected, obviously, for the people to turn from their uh, repentance and go back to their wicked ways. So now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to shave him from his discomfort. So in addition to the booth that he made, there's also now this plant that's grown up over him. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So God appointed first a plant, and then he appointed a worm to attack the plant, and then he appointed a, a scorching east wind, which is known as a Scirocco in that area, and they're not infrequent in that area, and it would have been a miserable existence for Jonah, and he's already mad. I mean, you can see this whole thing, and there's there's echoes here of Elijah, actually, when Elijah is being pursued by Jezebel, and he decides, I'm out of here, I can't take this anymore, and he goes out into the wilderness, and he's mad there, and he wants to die. He wants exactly the same thing Jonah does. You know, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that cares about you, which is not true, but but here, it's the same attitude that Jonah brings. Jonah, Elijah was more or less fed up with the people because they didn't turn away from Jezebel and Ahab. They, they didn't fully reject those other Sidonian gods like Baal. And so now he, so he abandoned the people. And now here you got Jonah who's angry because God is merciful to anybody other than the nation. And so he gets angry, and then he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. Well, he's already said that before, just exactly like Elijah did when he was out in the wilderness. So God said, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And, and you know, if, <laughs> if you're human, you can probably relate to this at some point because you could probably look back at some point in your life and realize you were being a petulant jerk about something, um, and, and you got more mercy than you deserved, but you were so angry that you couldn't even imagine any other outcome other than the one that you wanted to see. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And, and so he is drawing a distinction here, and I really believe this, between animal life and plant life. He says, you were upset because this thing that, that you didn't do anything to produce came up and withered and died in a day, but you want me to destroy all these people and all these animals here. And so I think God's making a distinction between kinds of life here. I think you see three kinds of life, plant life, animal life, and human life. And here God's saying, you know, look, you can't be upset about the plant and, and, it, and, and not see why it's good to have mercy on life in this way, a sentient kind of life in this way. But it, but it can become our, our reality, and we can become like Jonah, and Jesus tells a parable to explain what it looks like. So he also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, so he's off to the side, he, he's special and he's better than, he stands by himself and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Well, the problem that he's got First is that he's arrogant and he's proud. Those are the two biggest problems that he has. But the, but the main issue, in my mind, that he has is he's comparing himself to other people, and, and like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, and the tax collector. Well, that's not the way it works. It's not comparative righteousness. It's not, how do I compare with other sinful people? No, it's how do I compare to God's standard of righteousness, 
and that standard of righteousness is more than just following the rules and doing the doing the things that God said to do and not doing the things God didn't say to do. No, it involves things like loving God and loving your neighbor, and it's exactly the problem that the rich young ruler had, right? I mean, he wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life, and, and Jesus gives him the commandments that said, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't bear false witness, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet. And he says, I've done all those things. And then he exposes him and says, now sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And what, it, what that points out is, is that, that you don't love God with your whole heart. You love something else more than him. And the proof is you won't get rid of it to get the kingdom. And so it's here, it's this comparative righteousness that is, that is absolutely meaningless. And, and Jesus' life and the cross and the resurrection tell us that story. It's perfect righteousness. But like I said, it's not just keeping the rules. It's more than that. No, it's how do you love your neighbor? What do you do to love your neighbor? And in Jesus' case, it's healing them. But it's also telling them the truth when they need to have the truth told to them like the Pharisees did. So the, he, he's, so this guy prays, and, and, he, and he cites all the good stuff that he does, and he compares himself to the worst possible people, and then said, but the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. I mean, he's humble before the Lord. He's not standing there beating his breast and, and exclaiming what a great guy he is. No, no, no. This guy won't even lift his eyes. He's looking down. He beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He acknowledged who he was. He acknowledged that he was in need of mercy, and he acknowledged that he was a sinner. He didn't describe himself as the most righteous guy. I mean, he could have said, I guess, he could have looked down that same list and said, okay, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not an extortioner. I'm just collecting taxes, which makes me bad. Now, he could be an extortioner, (laughs) and he could be unjust in what he does. But that's not what he claims. He doesn't claim anything other than he's a sinner in the eyes of a righteous God. He's not comparing himself to other people. He's comparing himself to God. But he's calling on the mercy of God, which is what God promises for those who confess their sins. And so Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, if we want to exalt ourselves and talk about our own righteousness, we have a lot of embarrassment coming to us when we stand before the living God and his throne, and what we see what real righteousness is, then we're going to be incredibly embarrassed about a whole lot in our lives. And we have to take that attitude coming before our loving Father is, is that we, we can't hide our sins, we can't pretend that we have no sin, and we've got to stop comparing ourselves one to another. And especially like in this case where you, know, you just choose the worst possible people in the world and say, oh, I'm not like them. Well, bully for you. And, and is all the commandments summed up in, I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all that I get? What, what are you doing about loving your fellow man? I mean, it doesn't seem like much because you've just slandered some of them when you list made that little list. So it, it, it's a failure to recognize their own humanity and their own failings. And, and you know, those people are actually kind of legion. And they just sort of overlook a lot of the sin in their lives because they compare themselves with people who are just heinous. In the um, epistle today, the, the letter from Hebrews, it, it begins with therefore. Well, that begs what was the argument that led up to the therefore. 
because these things are true is what therefore says. Therefore says, because these things I've previously said are true, now here's the implication of that. So what is it? What is the therefore referring to? Well, what it is is a list of those who have gone before, mostly Old Testament um, heroes and icons who have gone before us and shown us the way to live in this world, which is as strangers and aliens, those who are looking for a better country, who realize this world is not the be-all, end-all, and who don't obsess over all this, but they obsess over the kingdom of God, just exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler. Get rid of all the stuff you have and give it to the poor. Well, it could be the same way with any worldly cares that we have. We can be so consumed by those that we no longer are pursuing the kingdom of God. And those things can then cause us to be like Jonah in that first lesson and hate those people who we consider to be our enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. I mean, it's so to the extent that that you're all spun up about um, other people, people that you consider your enemies, Jesus would say, stop it, because loving your enemies means don't have enemies. If those people consider you their, their enemy, don't return that favor. Don't have the same attitude towards your enemies that they have towards you. Instead, love your enemies. And Paul tells us to do the same thing in, in Romans. He says it'll be like heaping burning coals on their heads. It'll be so confusing to them that they don't know what to do. Well, I had a guy that I worked with for a while that it, I worked for him, actually, more or less. It's difficult to determine that relationship, even at this 30 years later. But, but he defrauded the government, And he also kind of messed me over in the process and threatened me because I'm the one who blew the whistle on his fraud. And so he absolutely hated me, threatened to come and kill me. I mean, all kinds of crazy things. It's like, you you know, you're an accountant. Um, But but he, I mean, he always carried a gun with him and he called me to let me know that he did and that he had to pass by where I lived in order to go see his mother in a couple of weeks. I mean, it was completely insane. This is a 60-year-old man at the time who's threatening me this way, and I got really angry, and I said a couple of things, and I ended up repenting of that and called him and said, hey, I'm really sorry that I said these things. And, And I've never talked to anybody who was as confused as he was when I said I was sorry. So it, we've got to not have the attitude that Jonah has towards those people that we disagree with and that we consider our enemies. We've got to stop considering them our enemies, and we've got to pray for them. We've got to pray for them in a way that Jonah wouldn't pray for the people of Nineveh. We've got to pray that, that, that the Lord convict them of sin and that they repent in exactly the same way the people of Nineveh did. And, and we've got to pray for the same thing for ourselves, that God would expose the sin in our own lives so that we would repent of those things so that he could bless us. So here he said, because we're surrounded, he says, by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith is all based in Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before him was to sit at the right hand of the Father, And because he so valued the promise, he endured the cross. He didn't count this life as anything at all. And he didn't defend himself. 
and he didn't hate the people who crucified him. In fact, he prayed that the Father would forgive them for they know not what they do. So he says that, that he, he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so that part is fulfilled, and now the rest will be fulfilled at the end when we are gathered before him. And we are his children, and he will spend eternity with us because he died so that we could be saved. The writer says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I mean, your life's not anything as difficult as Jesus is, is what he's saying. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard the, lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate child and not sons. So the difficulty that we endure here he says, is, is a result of God's love. He loves us, and he wants to be, wants more for us than we want for ourselves, but we don't like change. We don't like giving up habits and attitudes that we have. We don't like that at all, and so we have to endure the discipline of the Lord so that we'll change. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? I mean, you know, if you're willing to submit to and respect your Father who disciplines you, you know, this is God we're talking about. Shouldn't you be even more willing to submit to Him? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness so that we might be better people, we might be better image bearers, we might be more like his son, the one that he loved, the one that he sent to die for us, the one that he resurrected from the dead. We'll never deserve that because we didn't live sinless lives, and we're not going to live sinless lives from here to the rest of our lives, even if I only live through this afternoon. There will be sin in my life. So it's not because of our holiness that, we're, that we deserve the resurrection. It'll always be by the righteousness of Jesus that we deserve that, because our comparative righteousness with him is a joke. It's, it's just no righteousness at all, and that's exactly what Paul says. He compared it to either filthy rags or dung. Whatever he counted as righteousness before he came to know Jesus, he said in two different places, it's, it's either dirty rags or it's dung. That's exactly what I think of what I used to believe was holiness. And, and that's the point that we need to get at, because sin's deeper than we realize. And it's a bigger deal than we realize. And so th that's the reason for the discipline, is so that we will become more like what he intended for us to be. He said, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen to that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So to the extent that we submit to the discipline and allow it to shape us into these new creations, he said that that is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. and make, Put on your big boy pants. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may, be put out of may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a, there's a certain amount of holiness that we're, we're expected to have. We're expected to be changed into the image of God. We're expected to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in order that we might accept that which is good and perfect and pleasing to him, and then that we might pursue that with our own lives. That's the whole point of Ash Wednesday and of Lent, is to get us into a mindset where we have said, I, I recognize the sin in my life. I've confessed that to you. I confess that it's, that it's a heinous violation because I've been a disobedient child. But my intention from this point forward, is to no longer live that way. It's to get rid of that stuff in my life so that I would be more acceptable and more pleasing to you, even though I know that I'm not going to be in some ways because I can't be any more acceptable to you because I'm only acceptable to you because of the blood of Jesus. But I want to be more and more like him in order that I might truly be pleasing to you on my own.